Please remain standing as you're able, and will you join me as we follow very likely after the example of Jesus and Paul and other uh, very devout uh, followers of uh, the text who have recited the Shema before they came to the Word of God. Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Had. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The scripture this morning is from 1 Corinthians, the fourth chapter, beginning in verse 8. If you'd like to follow along, the words of the text are actually printed for you on the front of the bulletin. It will sound a little different than what I say for two reasons. One, it's a different version. And two, I have a real hard time memorizing Paul, so I'm likely to miss a a word or two or four as we go along. But you do have it in front of you. Already you have everything you want. Already you have become rich. Already you reign. And without us, would that you were reigning so that we would reign with you also. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles in the back of a a long line of procession as those condemned to die in the arena. We are made a spectacle before the whole universe, before men. And before uh, angels as well. We are fools for Christ, but you arise. We are, you are strong and we are weak. You are honored and we are dishonored. To this day, we are hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. And homeless. But we work hard with our hands. And when we are cursed, we bless. And when we are persecuted, we endure it. And when we are slandered, we give and answer in kind. We give kind answers. But it seems to me, this moment, that we are the scum of the earth, the garbage of the whole world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to be seated, please. Well, if you're like me and you read these words from Paul or uh, or you hear these words from Paul, your first question is, what's up with Paul? What's gotten into him? Why is he being so dramatic? And in verse 9 he says, uh, we're like the last people in the line of a, of a Roman procession, like people that are on their way to the arena to be fed to the lions or killed by gladiators. And then he, at the last verse of the section, verse 13, he says, we're the scum of the earth. We're the garbage of the whole world. Did you get up on the wrong side of bed, Paul? Was, you know, did you not have a good breakfast? What's going on? Why is Paul being so dramatic? Well, this morning, let me give you the easy answer. But as so often is true in matters of faith in the scripture, the easy answer is not always the better answer. And we'll go to that. The easy answer is this. If you look at chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, and read between the lines in chapter 2 and 3, you realize that after Paul started the church at Corinth, lived there 18 months, and left, people started criticizing him and judging him behind his back. And they say such things as, well, you know, he wasn't really that good when he was here in person. There are people who are better speakers. And they began to poke holes in his theology. 
Paul's being judged and criticized. And to make it worse, he's being judged and criticized by people who really haven't endured the kinds of things that he has endured. Uh, and Roger showed the children the red lines of the missionary journeys of Paul on the map. And Paul's been all over on behalf of the gospel of Christ. And the people criticizing him haven't left their front yard. No wonder Paul is upset. I remember Brene Brown who once said that she has gotten to the point where she will not listen to criticism from someone who is not in the arena fighting the battle she is fighting. She said, if their face is not bloody and their hands are not dirtied, I'm not going to listen to what they have to say. And maybe that's it. Maybe Paul is just like, I'm not going to take this from these people who have no idea what I'm going through and no idea what my life is like. Maybe he's saying that. And, uh, but there's a couple of things you need to know about this melodramatic Paul. Uh, and my theory that maybe it's because he's gotten unjustly criticized. First thing you need to know is, well, while I would respond like that, I'm not Paul. Paul's not me. One hopes that Paul's a whole lot more mature in his faith than I am. One hopes because Paul has actually been personally with the risen Christ, he's able to handle these critiques with a lot more perspective. And uh, maturity. The second thing is this. Paul's not sending a tweet here. Paul's not texting here. Paul's had a lot of time before he is composing a letter. Paul is being very intentional. He's just not blowing off steam. Because he is probably in Ephesus sending a letter back to Corinth with some runners. He's had time to think about this thing. From the time news got to him. The time that he had to think about it. And now right write it down or dictate it and send it back. Paul's not blowing off steam. There's something else. Paul's very intentional in his response. Paul uses what scholars call a catalog. Not a very fancy word, but it simply means a list of things that, that I've gone through. And Paul not only will do this in 1 Corinthians, but in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul has this famous um, uh, writing. Sometimes we read it at, uh, at funerals where he talks about that we face death, we're crushed on every side, but we don't despair and, and we don't give up hope. It's another list, just like he's giving today, another catalog. So I want to say to you this morning that it's not that Paul's ticked off and that he's ranting This morning, Paul is making an intentional response to something he sees in the church at Corinth. Now, here's my guess. What he sees in the church of Corinth is a group of people who believe that their their faith in Jesus makes them immune to suffering or helps them uh, to where suffering is beneath them. It makes them to where they already have walked into their kingdom, we might say. Now, such people who might believe this would come about it honestly because there's um, a couple of groups of philosophers in the Greco-Roman world called Cynics and Stoics. They're a little bit like we use the phrase today, but not exactly. And one of the things the Cynics and Stoics had in common was they felt like their philosophy made them immune to suffering. It made them that they didn't even have to acknowledge suffering. Suffering didn't touch them. Disease didn't bother them. They were above the whole thing. And when you add that attitude to Jesus who has risen from the dead, that made Christian cynics and Stoics just completely untouchable. They were already living in the full glory in their mind of the kingdom of God. And I think that Paul thinks that's a real problem. And I think he thinks it's a problem on a number of levels. The first is this. The easiest way to say it is, 
In the 1950s, there was a famous preacher, his name was Ralph Stockman, and he said that you could divide the world into two kinds of Christians. The kinds of Christians who are trying, through their faith, to make a better place for themselves in the world as it is, and then a group of other Christians who are trying to make the world, through their faith, a better world and a better place for everyone. And if you slice that at Corinth, what Paul sees is a bunch of people who are being very selfish, in the way that they view the faith. It's only for their benefit. It's only for what they can get out of it. And by the way, they're getting a lot out of that right now, and they are above suffering and trouble. And Paul wants to take that on. Now, let me hasten to add this disclaimer. I'm not saying there aren't benefits to our faith in Christ. I'm not saying a lot of good things don't come our way because of it. Some of you may remember some years ago when I even gave some empirical data uh, uh, to back that up. One was a study at Harvard. Uh, back in 2004, they did a study of undergraduates in the last few years at Harvard who, who had, through the student ministry or, or other miracles, became Christians, other works of God. And what they noted is in this study, which got uh, published in a journal for uh, psychiatrists, they noticed in the study that the ones who had been converted here at Harvard, these undergraduates, had a much healthier ego functioning after the conversion than before. And they talked about the bad habits that they had gotten rid of, uh, things that were bad for their health. They studied harder. They had better relationships with people, and it had an overall lift effect. Uh, a few years after that, in 2008 or 9, Duke University Medical School did some studies about the relationship between faith and health. And one of the things they came up with is that, um, the, that faith leads to a lot of positive outcomes in our health. Um, two of them, most notably, uh, were this, a stronger immune system for those who believe and practice their faith, and also lower blood pressure, uh, by and large. And then they went on to study other sort of social things, and they found that people actually lived longer on the whole if they were people of faith, and that if both um, parties in a marriage were faithful in worship attendance, uh, their marriage was actually healthier, stronger, and lasted longer. There are some benefits, and there are some empirical data to go along with it. But Paul's not interested in that. Paul is more worried about people that only look at the faith from what's in it for me. And he knew the faith was not about what's in it for me. It's about what's in it for the whole world. What's God doing for everybody? I heard a wonderful, uh, uh, this past week, um, description of Judaism, which I think fits Christianity. A modern rabbi said this. He said, Judaism is a protest against the world that is in the name of the world that ought to be. A protest against the world that is with human trafficking, violence, poverty, no clean water, uh, relational discord, uh, racism. The world that is a protest against that in the name of the world that ought to be. And I think that Paul kind of gets that. The rabbis, by the way, including Jesus, called that the kingdom of God. When you were working with your faith to make the world a better place, it was called bringing in the kingdom of God. And supposedly we pray that every day when we pray the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come. It's a way of saying, God, I'm not in this for me. We're in this for everyone. And I think Paul is disturbed by the way they've twisted uh, faith to their own advantage. I think Paul's disturbed because they're talking about getting out of suffering and he's preaching to them Jesus crucified and risen. 
Well, how's crucifixion not suffering? Jesus was arrested. Jesus was beaten. Jesus was betrayed by some of the people closest to him and then nailed to a cross. The pattern of Jesus' life is a pattern of suffering. And so you sit there in Corinth and say, I believe in Jesus, so I don't suffer. Paul didn't get that. In fact, one could make the case that nearly every great leader in the Bible, heroes and heroines, go through a period of struggle and suffering in their life. Let's start with Abraham and Sarah, waiting so long to have a child. Moses, uh, rejected by Pharaoh, rejected by uh, his people, rejected by his own family. Ruth, untimely death of a spouse, left to be a foreigner, moving to another country. And then there's Elijah, after his greatest moment, uh, they kill the 450 false prophets on Mount Carmel. Uh, fire rains down from heaven. The next day, Elijah's running for his life and hiding in a cave. And he says to God, just kill me. Just, just end this now. Then there's Jeremiah. Things go so well for Jeremiah that uh, uh, the people in his town think so much of him, they take him in the, and put him in the bottom of a cistern and leave, they leave him there to die. That's what it is. To have faith. That's what it is. To be a leader of God's people. And Paul can see this in Jesus. And he sees it in himself. In his catalog that he writes uh, in 2 Corinthians. He talks about how many times he's been shipwrecked. How many times he's been beaten with 40 lashes minus one. Because 40 was against the law. Because they believed you could be dead at the end of 40 lashes. So they could only give you 39. How many times Paul has received that? And so Paul thinks of all that and then looks at these people who said, Nah, we don't suffer. It's all good. We're in Jesus. Paul's got a problem with that. I think Paul's got a problem also that they are living as kings and queens when he knows that you can't really rule until you've learned how to struggle and suffer. That the best rulers actually walk through very difficult times to make them the rulers they become. For example, King David, little boy. And uh, he's anointed by Samuel King. Well, he still has to clean up his room. He still has to watch the sheep. Then he will have to spend a number of years running for his life from King Saul who wants to kill him. That's the school of government that David went to. That's where he got his masters. He got it by being chased around the country by people who wanted to kill him. And it made him into such a person that the Psalms say that he shepherded God's people with integrity of heart. It turned him into that kind of leader, a good leader. Now, this won't surprise you, but I'll just say it so we're clear. I am not a political science major. I'm not an international politics major. I don't know very much. But when you look at the Brexit uh, vote this past week, one of the interpretations of what happened interests me. One of the interpretations, whether it's right or wrong, was that you had a cultural, educated elite making economic decisions, making uh, decisions about the country and its directions. And you had other people who felt like the educated elite did not hear them or care much one way or the other. And this was their chance to say, we don't trust you. You don't know what it's like to be us. You're in the ivory tower. You're making the calls. You have no idea what it's like out here. You should never become king or queen, I believe Paul would think, until you have gone through the school of suffering which prepares you to lead. People who have gone through suffering and struggling and are honest about it become more empathetic. They become 
better uh, listeners. They become better in touch with people. And I think Paul felt like these Corinthian uh, leaders were completely out of touch with Jesus and what he was about and the people and where they were. There's an old story, and uh, I don't know if it's true, but it's about a, a guy that drives a cab. Now, it's such an old story that the cab is a horse and buggy. And one day he picks up a very rich man to take him to appointment. The man gets in the back of the cab and the driver turns and says to him, uh, my son died last week. And, the, and the, uh, the wealthy man in the back said, oh, really? What happened? And he starts to tell him. And then the man pulls his pocket watch out and says, hey, we need to get going. I need to be there. And they take off. He picks up his second client, also, also a very wealthy man, on his way to an important appointment. And he turns to the back seat and he says, my son just died last week. And the man in the back seat looks at his pocket watch and makes this response. He said, well, everybody dies. Get over it. And then he picks up a third man, also very wealthy, on the way to an important appointment. And he turns to the back seat and he says, my son just died last week. And the man says nothing and just points ahead. And they take off. And so when he's finished delivering these three very important men to their three different important engagements at the end of his morning, he gets out of his cab, walks around to his horse, and he looks at him and and says, my son just died last week. If the people won't listen, I'll try a horse. There's something about being in touch with our suffering that puts us in touch with other people. And those are the kind of people who are fit to rule as kings and queens in the kingdom of God. But I think what upsets probably Paul the most and makes him write this very strong passage is this. These people not only don't understand what faith is about, they not only don't understand the example that Jesus set and how he lived, they also don't understand what it is to rule. They don't understand anything about what the kingdom of God is like. Because the kingdom of God is not when I get mine and I get mine. And the kingdom's come. And then you get yours and the kingdom has come. That's not how the kingdom works at all. There's no kingdom for any of us until there's a kingdom for all of us. And Paul knows that. It's a great story from the life of Frederick Buechner. You may be familiar with him, a Christian author of both fiction and nonfiction uh, a couple of years out of college, he got his first book contract, so he goes to a very uh, big high-rise in New York City to the publisher, um, not only signs the contract, but gets his first advance, and he's walking out uh, toward the elevator with his check in hand. And he happens to know a man, notice a man in kind of a uniform of somebody working there for the building, doing a menial task, and he recognizes that young man as someone who went to college with him and started at the very same time. And he remembered how they both started college at the same time with the same kind of goals to make it in this world, to survive in New York City and do those kinds of things. And here he was with a big advance and there was this man mopping the floor. And he got on that elevator and it struck him at that time, this thought, he said, Maybe there's no complete joy for any of us until there's joy for all of us. Somehow the check just wasn't as big. It didn't seem as significant. Now, I'm not saying that we should not rejoice. It's a biblical 
um, it's a biblical principle to find joy where you can find and celebrate where you can celebrate it. In fact, we're told that one of the things that angels will ask us in heaven is, did you rejoice in the life that God gave you? Did you take advantage of those opportunities? That's a, a rabbinic teaching. But at the other hand, we can't assume that our joy is complete and that the world is set right on its axis when other people are not sharing in that joy and sharing in the kingdom. There's no joy completely for any of us until there's joy for all of us. There's no kingdom for any of us until there's kingdom for all of us. In Jesus' day, they used to describe the kingdom of God when it came in its fullness like a wonderful banquet in heaven where all of us would be sitting at a table having more than we can even eat. But one of the parables they told about it went like this. It's not in the Bible, but I think it makes the biblical point. That the kingdom of heaven is like a great banquet, and when everyone sat down to eat at the banquet, they were given forks, and the forks with which they were given to eat the banquet were six feet long. Well, imagine the picture. It is physically impossible to feed myself with a six-foot fork. The only possibility is that I can feed the person across the table from me. It was their way of making the point, a point that Paul desperately hoped the Corinthians would learn, that there's no kingdom for any of us until there's kingdom for all of us.